Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm awfully glad to have my friend Mark Muska in studio. We're going to do Ask the Professor Hour, and we've already got some questions coming in. I'm looking forward to that. We've already got some questions that came in on voicemail and some text questions, and I know you've got one for him, so let me know what it is. Send the text to 877-933-2484, or you can call that number because Ryan's in the phone room and he'll take the call. And we'll patch you right into the live show, and you can ask Mark yourself. And we like to talk to people. Well, speak for yourself, Mark. I do. Yeah. It's <laughs> more fun than text. No, it's, it's actually way more fun. Because we get the questions more clarified. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the text messages come in, and we, we want more information. So if you can call, then we definitely can get more information. More that, fun. Way more fun. All right. That number again is 877-933-2484. We'll be <clears> back in 60 seconds. February is a short month, but regardless of the number of days in the month, Faith Radio provides hope and encouragement through gifted preachers who teach God's Word and compelling conversations from our Faith Radio show hosts who help make the connection between faith and life every day. This daily ministry is available because of listeners like you who value the teaching and talk programming and want to see the gospel go out on air and online and on the app. So join with us today by making a gift at MyFaithRadio.com. Connecting faith to life every day. He's on the inside of me, guiding me, leading me, helping me, strengthening me, healing me, caring for me, providing for me, answering my prayers, doing everything he said he would do. That's where he is. Faith Radio. All right, we are ready for a full hour with Dr. Mark Muska. And let us know what your questions are, 877-93-FAITH. It's Ask the Professor, 877-933-2484. That's a text number, or you can call, and you can uh, join us on the show. You can speak right directly to Mark. All right, here's a question from Matt. Uh, this is out of Luke 14, verses 15 to 24. And it, he said, it's the last verse that puzzled me. He said, I tell you... Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Mm -hmm. Who were invited? Jesus said the host invited many guests who later had other priorities, but aren't we all guilty of that? Of having other priorities? Yeah. I I suppose. Uh, I think that the context of it, if you look at verse 15, they're all eating together here. Well, that's the context for Jesus saying this parable. And uh, one of them says here that... um, well, they're talking about the resurrection and the resurrection of the righteous. And so this one, whoever it is, chirps up and says, when one of those who was reclining at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus launches from that. Okay, you want to talk about 
uh, being at the banquet in the kingdom of God. That's going to be great, but who's going to be there? Uh, He doesn't specify this bill, and Matt, uh, so we have to be careful. I think the best guess that he's getting at here is those who were invited were those who were of the covenants throughout all of the Old Testament period, that they've had the word of God, they've had the covenant with God, and so they have been they have been invited to be in the kingdom. And those uh, who were invited seem to have excuses or other priorities or whatever it is, and they are not responding to Jesus. And so uh, Jesus pretty much uh, makes the statement there uh, in verse 23, uh, the master here is speaking to the slave, the master of the banquet, and he says, go out on the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so my house may be filled. So just about anybody who's out there hanging around is now invited into the banquet. And that indicates that this banquet in the kingdom is going to be far bigger than just uh, the people of the covenant Mm -hmm. in the Old Testament. This is going to include just about anybody. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, you can see that one of the major emphases of the Gospel of Luke is Luke makes it clear that all who wish to come to Jesus may come. It doesn't matter your ethnicity, your race, your background, your age, your intelligence, your job, nothing that anyone who wishes to come may come. And so in this banquet, he's compelling everyone to come into the banquet. They are welcome. But those who think they're going to be at the banquet because they're part of this chosen people, not one of them is going to get in. They need to respond to Jesus. It's not good enough to cling to Moses and the prophets. Mm -hmm. They have to recognize the Messiah right in front of them or they're not going to be there. Great answer. Thank you. And great question. Thanks, But I, I have to qualify that a little bit. That is not explicitly laid out there, but it does fit the context of the gospel as a whole, Bill, that they... Uh, that the, those who are outside of the respectable people or the people who think they're in, those on the outside of that are welcome into the kingdom. Jesus will not disqualify anybody because mm-hmm. of who they are or yeah. their background. We were talking last hour about loving your enemy, and mm-hmm. we, we went back and forth on a number of things, and I thought, well, what, what are the qualifications for being an enemy? Well, I mean, How a, do you define who an enemy is? If you if you look at this, I mean, I, you can make this really broad. Okay. That uh, I think that I like to contrast it to what a friend is. And so it's someone who is not a friend, but then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle of that, too, mm-hmm. that are indifferent. I mean, you just simply don't know them, mm-hmm. and so they are not your enemy, neither are they your friend. But an enemy, it seems as though it implies with it the idea of um, uh, understood animosity right. or hatred or uh, opposition to you. So, uh, But this can get real tricky, too. I like to take it into an athletic con, uh, context where sometimes, especially with younger kids, when they're competing, they will treat the opposing team like they're enemies. Uh, no, they're not. They're just on the other team, and you're both competing <laughs> together, yeah. and you really have a, a, a bond of commonality in there that you're both competing in the same contest together, and you should be able to rejoice. But there's a lot of hatred and, and smack talk and all this kind of thing that gets going uh, without warrant sometimes. So just because someone is an opponent, I mean, I can go to a warfare context with this. From what I've read about the Civil War, there were dear friends that fought one another mm-hmm. in the Civil War because of 
of the the allegiances that they drew up that they did not hate each other yet they went to war and killed one another wow. many times so wow. that that uh, that idea of enemy and hatred is a it has to be studied carefully i think mhm another question what does it mean when it says the kingdom of god suffers violence and the violent take it by force yeah that there's all kinds of uh, ways to look at that, and I'm not, I'm not sure I understand exactly what Jesus getting, Jesus is getting at there, uh, but he is talking about uh, there is, uh, there is contested territory, not only on the earth but in the kingdom of God, and of course the two of them are overlapping when Jesus is on the earth because he's the king, and so the kingdom is there with him. And so there's going to be opposition, and uh, there's going to be wins and losses as far as the 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 uh, uh, the battles that go on there between uh, the kingdom and those who oppose it. And that may be very much material with nations and people. It may be spiritual with uh, forces of darkness as well. Mm-hmm. Another good answer. You're on a roll already, Mark. I don't know. I'm going fast here. No, you're not. So. It's good. I know there's lots of people with lots of questions. Let me know what they are. You can call or text. The number again is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We've got uh, another uh, question that is on our voicemail, and I think it's. Uh, we'll play it right now. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Justin, and I'm just responding to one of the te- one of the hosts. Um, said to call in about any question to talk about. Um, and so I just want to call in for a question. I've just been debating or um, doing some thinking about children of God. And is everybody on earth a child of God, or is it only people who are saved? That's yeah. a good question. Yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, I, I don't, uh, Justin, I guess it is, uh, Justin, I think you have to look at it in the sense of the context in which it is it is given, that in one context, we are all children of God in the sense that we are all his creatures. We have all come from his hand uh, th- through, the, th- through the generations. And so in that sense, yes, uh, all the human beings on earth are children of God, yet there's a, a special uh, uh, category of the children of God that Jesus talks about in John chapter 1 for those who receive him. Let me just give this. Uh, John, the, John the Apostle is uh, just introducing his gospel here. And you know what verse I'm talking about here. You just quoted it, John one twelve, where uh, he talks about in verse 11, he says, Jesus came to his own people and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so that obviously restricts it to those who believe in his name, have received him. They are the children of God. I like to draw the comparison there, uh, 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 Justin, that uh, this is... Uh, this brings heirship to it, heir, not A-I-R, but H-E-I-R, inheritance to it, that the children of God are heirs to his promises. The big ones I hang on to are the promise of forgiveness of sin, the promise of peace with God, and the promise of eternal life. We have inherited those promises as his children, his sons and daughters, 
because we have believed in Jesus and put our trust in the gospel. So in that sense, it's not quite the same thing. You can even get into this too, Bill, with the uh, idea of the world and how the term world is used Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. You got to be real careful to look at the context for that. Because in one sense, in John 3.16, everybody's got that memorized, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, for God so loved the world, that seems to be categorical. All human beings, he loves the world that he gave his only son and so forth. But then there's many times in the scriptures where the world is used for the dark forces that oppose God and his kingdom, uh, the worldly desires, for example, those types of things. So just because a word is used in the Bible doesn't mean it's used in the same sense all the time. And uh, we've got plenty of that in modern day English as well. You always have to look at the context of how the word's being used to understand it. So uh, my caution to people is always look around at the context when you're looking at certain terms or certain ideas to make sure you're not uh, yanking it out by the roots. Mm -hmm. All right, Dr. Mark Muska is in studio. Ask the professor anything. 877-93-FAITH. You can text me or you can call and ask your question live on the air. How fun would that be? Let's give that a try. We'll be back in 90 seconds. the show. Dr. Mark Musk is in the studio with me. I always like seeing Mark. Just like hanging out with friends. Yeah, so, we look great on radio. You know, know that? I know. Mm-hmm. I think I'm more handsome, but that's just, again, speculation. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark. Um, here's a question, and I'd like to answer it myself. I'll answer the first part, and you answer the second. Go, baby. Question is, how does Mark end? And I'm thinking, well, how does Mark end? Probably... I go to sleep at night. Well, that or skydiving, cliff diving when you're 94. That would probably end you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How does Mark end? Yeah. Well, then I'm, I'm in the 16th chapter of Mark, and it says, The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. Mm-hmm. And so how do we uh, deal with those verses, that uh, 9 to 20? Yeah, we take them uh, with a grain of salt, that they may not be a part of the original gospel. Hmm. This is a question that many, many Christians have no idea about, but it is quite a well-developed study in New Testament uh, that's called uh, by a very um, uh, misleading name. It's called introductory studies in the New Testament. But what these scholars do is that they study the manuscripts that we have access. The technical word we use for it, Bill, is we call them extant manuscript. If a manuscript is extant, that means you can look at it. It exists. It's either in a library or in a museum or something like that. Mm -hmm. But we've got thousands and thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. Some of them date back just a few hundred years. Some of them date back almost to the first century, to the second and third century. And so for the Gospel of Mark, for example, we have many, many copies of Mark's Gospel. And most of those copies agree with one another fabulously well, Mm -hmm. even across the centuries. But there are some disputed texts in some of these copies. So there are some copies of the Gospel of Mark that end in Mark 16, 8. And Mm. that's it. 
That's mm-hmm. the end of the gospel. But there's other copies of Mark's gospel that include these verses from 9 through 20. And what your Bible is telling you there is that the earliest manuscripts, the ones that date closer and closer back to the original writing of these, they do not include this passage. Okay, And so there's a, there's usually a priority given to those that are earlier rather than those that are later. Although there's another school of thought among scholars to say the 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 reading that has the most copies, manuscript copies to it, should be prioritized because that's what's obviously survived down through the centuries. So mm-hmm. they have a great time writing papers and holding conferences and, and debating all this. But it's a really important question for us to say, how do we know and how can we have confidence in the Bible we read today that it's as close as possible to what the gospel writer Mark actually penned back there in the first century? Mm-hmm. And now I want to reassure people listening to this that way, 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 way more than 95, 97% of the New Testament is in agreement. That this usually has a very minor readings or, or, or differentiation that really doesn't matter much at all to the reading of the New Testament or the teaching of the New Testament. But we yet we still are curious about it. And mm-hmm. so... How do we know which is the best reading of this gospel? Uh, one of the more famous passages that people get into, in fact, I was uh, a part of a, a church that went through the gospel of John, and the pastor got into John chapter 8, the story about the woman caught in, in adultery. And he spent the first 20 minutes of his message that morning talking about the fact that some copies of John's gospel have this story in it, but the earliest copies of John's gospel don't have it in there. So should we take this as scripture? And he taught it and he led us in this, but he said, we have to be cautious about this passage because it's it's like it has an asterisk to it to say, we don't have the kind of confidence in this passage that we do with a lot of the rest of the scripture. But I have to tell you, Bill, overwhelming number of these discrepancies, what we call them as variant readings Mm -hmm. of the New Testament, they have to do with one word that one copy has and the other copy leaves out, or one copy has uh, a couple words in there and the one just has one or something like that. They're very minor differences. It is amazing how the copies of both the Old Testament and the New Testament are consistent over the centuries. Mm -hmm. Even with the Old Testament, it was really fun back in the 1940s. I wasn't around for this, but the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered uh, next to the Dead Sea in Israel, and there were copies of Old Testament scriptures in there that predated all other copies we had of the Old Testament by almost a thousand years. Mm. And so these scholars started to compare the two. Yeah, they're salivating, they, weren't they? And they were almost identical. Yeah. yeah. So think of it over a thousand wow, years so of cool. scribes hand copying these things through the centuries, they got it right. They were they were fastidious about yeah. getting it exactly right. Yeah, the corruption rate just was minuscule, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. and so you can have confidence you're reading God's Word when mm. you read your Bible. Amen. All right, Mark, here's a question from a listener. Some days I feel so confident and in pursuit of God's love. Other days it's all I can do to lift up prayer to God. And her question is, do you ever feel that way? What, having ups and downs with God? Yeah. Oh, sure. Okay. I have that with almost everybody. I have that with me. I have ups and downs with myself. Yeah. Sure. I think sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves, Bill, that we think, oh, boy, you know, unless I pray such and such many times a day or unless I'm helping this or giving that and all this, we start uh, getting down on ourselves. 
And uh, this happens, you know, it's the, our relationship with God is special, but if we're human beings at all, we're going to have our ups and downs and days where mm-hmm. God just seems to be very distant mm-hmm. and other days when you sense his presence in a very real and precious way. And then you have all kinds of days in between. And so that that is just to be expected. I think many married couples can relate to this to say some days things are smoking between mm-hmm. you and your spouse and other days it's like meh, you know, I mean, just, uh, yeah. uh, there's nothing. So uh, I think we have to be careful not to be too hard on ourselves. Yeah. Now, sometimes people get into dry spells where it stays distant for an extended period of time. That's when you maybe want to take some steps to talk with someone Mm -hmm. or have people pray for you or something. But the incidental kinds of things up and down, uh, we got to be careful not to overreact to those. Mm. I love something you said months and months ago, and it was you wanted to take out the word prayer and just put in the word talk. Yeah. And I think if if you're struggling to lift up in prayer to God, if you... Think of, I'm just going to be dialoguing and talking to God throughout my day. Mm-hmm. I don't think you ever feel too far from that. No. And and this is, I think that word prayer has almost been ruined. You know, it's a stained glass word. We have all these ritual prayers we think about when we think about prayer, or we have to address God or even talk about God as a God or something <laughs> like that when we pray <laughs> that there's something weird about it. But uh, I have an assignment I give my students that yeah. I think helps them sometimes where is it? I tell them, you know, for five to seven minutes today, Uh, talk to God and tell him exactly what you're thinking about and how you feel, good, bad, or otherwise. Just talk to him like he's your friend. I know he is your God, he is your master, he is your Lord, but he is also your friend, Mm -hmm. and he is closer to you than anybody. If if we're crying out to God, Mark, we're going to be raw, aren't we? We're not going to speak in complete sentences and sometimes stay Mm -hmm. uh, in a train of thought. We're going to be all over the map. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I am anyway. Yep. And you know what sometimes really hurts us here, and I'm going to give a a gentle little exhortation to pastors and church leaders out there for this, is that we really will sometimes twist this unbeknownst, without wanting to, completely harmless motivation, but in the ways that we do public prayer. When a pastor prays in his services, when someone leads a Bible study in prayer, sometimes we give people the wrong idea. I can't tell you how many times I've heard students tell me that they don't want to pray in public because they don't pray good enough. Mm-hmm. And they don't, you know, they don't have the words and they'd sound stupid and everything. Some of the best prayers I've ever heard is the new Christian that says, uh, God, uh, this is Mark and I live over here in Arden Hills and <laughs> I haven't known you very long, but thank you for saving me. You know, a prayer like that. It's so sweet. Just strips away all of that, all of that clutter yeah, from yeah. it. And so I wish that, you know, those who pray in public would really consider this about really modeling, talking with God in their prayers and and bringing substance, of course, but also bringing realism to that. I, I think it's one of the major areas of church life that needs a second look. Do you think we also have to be careful if you're praying in public that you're not um, talking about other people in the context of the prayer under the umbrella of well, prayer? it can become gossip in a hurry if you're not careful. Well, it can so. be that, but I, if if I want to be complimenting you, I'm doing it in prayer. Lord, I just want to thank Mark for how smart he is and how gracious yeah. he is. I mean, 
Give it a rest. You know, I mean, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I don't think so. <laughs> the other thing, the most common thing I hear from pastors is they'll give a little sermonette in their prayer. Yeah. And help our people to <laughs> understand that they need to give to the church in order for the church to continue on, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, again, yeah. save it for the sermon. We'll be right back. Dr. Mark Muska, 877-93-FAITH, 877-93-FAITH. We'll be back in uh, a couple minutes. Musk is in the studio. Ask the Professor is well underway. Let us know what your questions are. Mark, when we look at the Old Testament, we start studying Genesis and Exodus and start going through those books. We start to learn... Great stuff. Great stuff. We learn some of the character of God. In Exodus 33, he makes a pretty interesting statement. Lord's talking to Moses, and in verse uh, 3 of chapter 33, he says, Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Yeah. Ouch. Yep. God was ticked. (laughs) All right. And he had reason to be. Because if you go back a chapter, when Moses goes up to uh, uh, be with God on the the mountain there at Sinai, uh, this is when the people persuade Aaron to make a golden calf, and they worship this while while Moses and God are up there. And, And in chapter 32... Uh, God says, uh, step aside, Moses, because I'm going to destroy these people and make you into a great nation. Mm. And so uh, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and God uh, doesn't do it. But he still is, I would say, it's fair to say he's seething yet at these people. And uh, so he he lets them have it there in chapter 33 to say, uh, I might destroy them. If I'm with them, but Moses again, he's so great. You know what? The the Moses is an, an intercessor. He is a priest, a mediator between God and the people, and he goes to bat on behalf of the people. And they change their ways. They give up this with the golden uh, calf and their ornaments and the things that they were using that were displeasing to God. And so God did not destroy them. He did go with them into the wilderness. But that, too, was one whale of a journey with the people constantly rebelling against God and against Moses. And so uh, this was one hard time in the life of Israel. And it lasted almost 40 years, unfortunately, because they rebelled against God and did not trust him when he told them he would give them this land that he had promised to them. And because of their unbelief, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation had died in the wilderness. Anyone over the age of 20 died in the wilderness. And uh, it was the next generation that went into the land. So uh, this is, um, I, I like the realism of this. God hates sin and he hates rebellion. He did so much for that generation, taking them out from Pharaoh's control, bringing them across the wilderness and providing for their every need. And yet they still moan, groan, complain, bellyache the whole way. Uh, it gets absurd sometimes that they don't like what's happening to them. And they say, oh, if we could only be back in Egypt where we had plenty to eat, the leeks and the melons and all this kind of stuff. Oh, you brought us out here in the wilderness. ridiculous, you know. And you're saying, really? 
uh, are you, you got to be kidding me that they could forget so fast. Now, before any of you get on your high horse and start judging this generation, I don't know if any of us would have fared much better if we were in that crowd back then. Let's not be a little too self-righteous here about, well, if I would have been there, I certainly wouldn't have rebelled against God. Uh, uh, maybe. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. So uh, this this is a dark time in in Israel's uh, in Israel's uh, trek. Mm-hmm. I'm reading Leviticus, and last night I got woke up and I was having a little trouble sleeping, and I thought, well, I'll I'll listen to my Bible plan, and I was listening to Leviticus, and I had to turn it off because I was in chapter one and it was talking about you know taking and washing the internal organs and taking out the what's well, all the sacrifices, the liver and the kidneys, and yeah. put it on the north side of the altar. Yep, mm-hmm. I was like, ah, stop. <laughs> Yeah, it's very detailed here, but they're getting the instructions there on how to offer the sacrifices yeah. that will please God yeah. in the tabernacle. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, but, you know, two in the morning, it's kind of... Well, usually it's not exciting enough for most people either, so it puts them right back to sleep. <laughs> so I'm surprised that this kept you up. I turned the light on. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Mark, what about speaking in tongues? Is it a real thing or... What's what's with that? Oh, of course, it's a real thing. It's right there in the Bible mm-hmm. that uh, this. Uh, the, I like using the term languages to explain the gift of tongues. Uh, tongues is something that makes it sound like it's something weird or whatever. Uh, we use the word tongue like this uh, today. Uh, that sometimes, if we meet someone from another country, we're not not quite sure which language they speak, we'll say to them, you know, well, what's your native tongue? Mm-hmm. We mean language, right? And so the gift of tongues is a gift that is bestowed by the Holy Spirit that enables people to speak in languages they have never studied or never learned. And that that speaking is uh, to the level of uh, teaching from God oftentimes when other people have the gift of interpretation of tongues so that someone will speak in a language they don't know and then someone else will say, I know what that means, and then they will interpret it. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14, those two combined together are at the level of prophecy in the church, of God communicating his word through uh, this this gift, or these two gifts, I should say. Uh, tongues was manifested on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It absolutely floored the Jews that were in Jerusalem for the feast of uh, Pentecost. They had come from all over the place in the ancient Near East, and they, they, they shout out, you know, how, I don't know if they shouted, but they said that we are hearing the mighty works of God in our own languages, that the, the, the apostles had never studied these languages, but people were able to understand it. Mm-hmm. And so it's perfectly legitimate a gift in the scriptures. Now, I suspect what the caller or the listener was getting at is, what about tongues today? Mm-hmm. Is this something that continues? And we're not going to settle that one here okay. on this show, because this is a breach between a couple of major traditions in the church today. Uh, one that is usually labeled as a Pentecostal or charismatic, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes a vineyard or other terms are used for this, that believe that that gift and the gift of interpretation is still active today in the church. And then there's others who are not Pentecostal or charismatic that believe that that gift uh, faded at the end of the apostolic era, at the Mm -hmm. end of the first century. So it's no longer active today. 
And uh, I'm, I'm pleased that it seems as though this was a big deal 100 years ago. If you go back to 1920, there was real fighting and splitting of churches over this issue. It was really bad when all of this started out. But things have settled down a bit, and it seems as like we're able to reach more of a, a reconciled uh, approach between those two traditions in the church now mm-hmm. where they can at least get along with each other mm-hmm. without... Uh, throwing insults at each other and and uh, 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 causing division in the church. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Musk is in studio. Ask the professors underway. Let us know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. It's a text or you can call and ask live on the program. All right, Mark, why in Luke does Jesus often say, don't tell anyone? It's not just in Luke. Uh, this comes up several times in the Gospels. Uh the the uh, people have fun with this. Uh, sometimes the psychology people think that Jesus is using reverse psychology on people. He wants everybody to tell what's happening, but he tells them not to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, parents know about this with kids. If you tell a kid not to do something, they're going to go right out and do right. it. And so I don't know if that's the best. I think what it, it's getting at is that Jesus had a sense of timing for his ministry, that he knew when uh, I like the way John uses the expression where he says uh, that Jesus several times will say, my hour has not yet come. Mm-hmm. Remember, he says this in John chapter 2 when he turns the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. His mother comes up and says, well, they don't have any wine. And then he says to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But that tells us that he had a sense of timing for his ministry because toward the end of John, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So I think what he's saying to these people is he wants to keep a lid on this thing uh, to a certain degree before the time is right for his appearance, for his proclamation, for him to go to the cross, the whole thing that he knows is part of his life. And so if if this gets going too fast, uh, I can't remember uh, in which gospel it is, but it's uh, it even states that there was a movement that some may want to uh, to push and to make him king, uh, a movement of the population, and he wanted to squelch that or at least try to keep a lid on that. Uh, but uh, uh, that doesn't mean that the time wouldn't come for him to be presented to Israel and to the world as the suffering servant. Mm-hmm. Got a follow-up question about the tongues, Mark, regarding sure. speaking in tongues. The person who mm-hmm. speaks first is actually speaking a real language, correct? That is, uh, every indication from the New Testament is that these are languages. Okay. Now, what languages? Again, you're going to get all kinds of, of theories out there. Uh, are these known languages, something like Portuguese or Swahili or something like that? Uh, there's one school of thought that says, yes, these are sp- spoken languages on the earth. Uh, there are some in the Pentecostal and charismatic tradition that will say, uh, no, these, the, this is the language that was spoken on the earth before uh, the Tower of Babel that all had the same common tongue, and then when God mixed the languages, it was no longer active on the earth. Uh, I don't know how you prove that or disprove that. Uh, Others will go from 1 Corinthians 13 to say that this is an angelic language. Paul starts that love chapter there in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, if I have the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm like a clanging gong and a loud cymbal. Oh, tongues of angels. 
uh, what's that? And so there's speculation that this is some heavenly angelic language that is spoken. Uh, whatever it is, there's another school of thought, Bill, that thinks that the, the gift of tongues, the speaking of tongues, is more a gift of hearing than it is of speaking, that the person may speak in something that sounds indecipherable, but to the person to whom it's directed, it makes sense, and they're able to understand it. And so... Uh, how, what have I given you? Four or five theories yeah, right there? Yeah, I mean, so sure. we, we just have a, a tough time uh, with this. What gets people all worked up and, uh, and rubs their fur the wrong way is that in manifestations of tongues that people witness, it sounds like gibberish. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like any language at all. Mm-hmm. I can usually tell if someone's speaking a language I don't know. It, I don't understand it, but it sounds like something. But uh, when people hear tongues manifested, oftentimes it seems like it's monosyllabic, that mm-hmm. it's just la, 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 whatever it is, yeah. and it doesn't seem to make any sense at all. So that casts skepticism sure. on the validity of the gift itself, whether this is just some uh, psychological thing going on, the person's making it up or something. So uh, here we go with the argument. Right, there. right. We're going to stop it here, okay? Sure. <laughs> All right, here's another question. Do you think if Satan or demons repented and asked for forgiveness, God would forgive them? Yeah, that's a great question, but it's a hypothetical that the Scriptures never address, so I'm not going to. Okay. That uh, there is no hope given for Satan and the demons in Scripture, not one. Mm -hmm. That everything that talks about their future talks about judgment and a horrible fate Mm -hmm. in the lake of fire and brimstone. So uh, if God grants them mercy somehow... Uh, that's his prerogative, and he is a God of great mercy, but he doesn't reveal a word of that in the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll take a little break. We'll come back more with Dr. Mark Muska. Let us know what your question is. You can, uh, call, you can call or text 877-933-2484. And if you want to come on the show and ask Mark, you can do that. You can be anonymous as well, 877-93-FAITH. show dr mark musk is in studio and listener dave is so encouraging ah thank you dave dave from saint paul it's really nice all right mark uh first corinthians 13 talks about faith hope and love but they say the greatest of these is love well what about the person that's so full of love but has no faith yeah uh, i think you have to look at the timing of it in the context of first corinthians 13 here that uh, love is the, 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 the it abides because the time will come when our faith will be realized and we will see face to face that he says that in the in the verse before that first corinthians thirteen thirteen he says now faith hope love abide these three the greatest of these is love but verse 12 says now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now i know in part but then i will know fully just as i also have been fully known and so the day will come when we will behold our Lord. We must trust him now. I love the way Peter puts it. I'm just stuck on this verse in First Peter 1 where he says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you rejoice greatly. Mm. And so we don't see him. We must go by faith. We must depend on God's word that 
we do know God and we love him and he loves us. And so, and then uh, I liked what Rebecca brought out in the break too, is that uh, that uh, earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, he says in verse 2, uh, uh, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. So uh, that, uh, we have to take that into consideration when we start these. I don't want to denigrate faith one bit, but this love is the central uh, Mm -hmm. idea of chapter 13. And I like it in the context because in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And God help us if we don't exercise those gifts in love and kindness to one another, rather than uh, using them as weapons against each other. All right. This is an interesting question, and I had to read it a couple times. But it says, considering all of Scripture, what does God want? Well, I don't know if you can broil it down to one thing. If it would be one thing, he wants him. He wants to glorify himself. He wants his creation to respond to him in a way that will fulfill their existence and bring glory to him. And those two are seamlessly brought together. For the human race, he wants us to experience the limitless joy, love, and contentment that comes from knowing him and following him. So he is glorified, and we rejoice in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why he's given us his word. He has communicated to us. He's taken the initiative to make himself known to us to accomplish those things. Mm -hmm. Can you briefly explain... Angels, roles, (laughs) and hierarchy, yeah. (laughs) Jesus becoming superior to them. Yes, that's Hebrews 1, and it talks about that, that Jesus is superior to the angels. There appears to be a hierarchy of angels. Uh, In particular, Michael is described as an archangel or a prince of angels, and it appears, though, there are other archangels as well, although if my memory serves me right, I don't think there are any others named that way. Uh, Gabriel is never described as an archangel, for example, Mm. but he's kind of special when it comes to his, uh, his work as an angel. Uh, Are there hierarchies? However, there's different categories of angels. The seraphim are a category of angels that we read about. The cherubim are the Mm -hmm. same. And so uh, we have different labels used for them. Uh, Angels can frustrate you in the scriptures because they're talked about at times, but they're never really explained thoroughly to us. And so we just have to kind of go with partial knowledge about what the scriptures give us. I think God did that on purpose so we wouldn't get too fixated on them and uh, stay fixated on the important stuff. Mm -hmm. All right, I've got another uh caller from Hartford that left a message. I think, uh, Rebecca, would you play that? I'm listening to a show right now. I'm in West Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I'm in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, created he him, male and female, he created he them. But then in chapter 2, we get to Adam and Eve's story, how he put Adam into a deep sleep and created Eve. Mm-hmm. Did he create the Gentiles in the world in the first chapter and then a special creation of Adam and Eve in the second chapter in the Garden of Eden that they should grow up in? 
Yeah, boy, you know, you're, you're scratching your head on a good one there. I don't know your, what your name is, but that uh, that is something that has uh, been a head scratcher for a long time. I, I don't know if I would, uh, I don't know if that's the most likely way to understand Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. It seems as though Genesis 1 is giving us an overview of the whole shebang of creation. And it's framed in six days. And really, Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3 should be included in that because that includes the Sabbath on the seventh day, the seven days of creation, six days of creation, one day of rest. And so the thought ends there in chapter 2 verse 3. And then Moses starts telling the story about the heavens and the earth and what happened to them. And so it's like he rewinds the tape a little bit to talk again about the creation of Adam and Eve. So it's a generalization in chapter one, talking about how he created both of them in his image. But then he talks specifically about first Adam being formed, his body being formed out of the dust of the ground. He breathes into him the breath of life and he becomes a living being. And then Everybody reads about how he put Adam into a sleep and uh, took one of his ribs and formed Eve and gave him to her, and the two became one flesh together. That seems to give us more specifics about what he generalizes in chapter 1 there about the creation of uh, the, the human beings, male and female, in his image. I don't think it's talking about two separate creations there. Uh, uh, this happens all the time in literature where you have flashbacks or you have uh, things that uh, anticipate things ahead of time. Uh, uh, stories don't always run in strictly chronological order. All right. So there, let's see here. I got to formulate my next thought. Um, here's a question. What will happen to the angels after the second coming of Christ? Uh, that, uh, are you talking about the angels and the demons then, Let's, uh, or is it just the angels? Uh, just the angels. It appears as though the angels continue to love and serve God like they have throughout their entire existence. So I'm not sure uh, exactly what you're getting at there. Okay. Um, another question. I was reading um, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Yeah. Cain has an offering that's not acceptable. Um, he's angry and then God has some, um, pretty harsh punishment for him, right? Oh yeah. Well, after he kills Abel. Yes. Yes. And so then you keep reading and you think, well, he's, he's got some punishment from God. And then it says Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Mm -hmm. Cain was then building a city. It's like, what? Mm Mm-hmm. Building a city? You're not you seem to be doing okay for building a city. Yeah, he he named it Enoch. Yeah, uh, who knows how big it was? Yeah, I mean that this is this is the beginning of of uh, urban areas, right? Of people populating in in uh, congested or compacted uh, living arrangements. So, I'm not sure what you're getting at. Well, I was thinking of the punishment God gave mm-hmm. Cain for his sin and his his offering, mm-hmm. and but yet there appeared to be a pretty prosperous life going forward. Well, it's it's prosperous. We don't know how pleasant it is. Yeah, uh, He's bearing this mark so that no one kills him because it seems like he's uh, he's been cast out. Uh, it leads to all kinds of things that aren't really the greatest there at the end of chapter 4. But uh, 
he does seem to uh, do well if you want to talk mm-hmm. about it in material terms. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Since the first day included morning, sun, and night, moon, when the earth will be made new, there will be a sun, since Scripture says there will be no need, and yet the corrupted earth will be restored to its original design. I am I. I guess I'm wondering why the sun was needed before the fall in the first place. Uh, it's a part of the creation okay. and the days of creation. Uh, I'm not sure I understood that, though, that after uh, the appearance of the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sun any longer because of the illumination of God, and, and, uh, and we, right. we live in his light. There'll be no need for sun, will there? Right. So when the, when the new earth, the new, the heaven comes to the new, the new heaven comes to the new earth, there'll be no need for sun. Yeah. And uh, I, I think we have to be careful the way we talk about this, too, because it's not like the earth is going to be re- uh, renewed or regenerated. It's going to be recreated. Uh, that this earth, uh, Peter is quite explicit in Second Peter. He says that the, this uh, the present world we live in is reserved for fire and extreme heat, uh, the melting of the elements and so forth. And so uh, this uh, uh, new heavens and new earth takes its place. It is not something that has been renewed or that we have renewed in any sense. Mm-hmm. All right, here's a bonus question. What is Dr. Frankenstein's first name? I don't know. Yeah, Victor. <laughs> I didn't know that Back to that. Yeah, that was just a trivia question I Uh-oh. had for you because we're out okay. of time. Are I we? Thought, yeah, oh. I thought we're out of time. And, Already? Yeah. Oh, okay. Doesn't this go by fast? It does. Yeah. Always goes fast when you're having a good time. It is. This is the most fun I can have. It's mm-hmm. just studying God's Word with you. Yeah, and it's a I blast. gotta commend our listeners. I love their questions. Never stop asking questions. You I read know. the Scripture with a pencil in your hand and write down your questions you've and always, ask your pastor or whoever. You've always said that's the difference between reading Scripture and studying it is a pencil. Right. You keep it so simple, Mark. Yeah. So write it down. Keep asking those questions. Right. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks again for coming in. Sure. I just I uh, love this time, and I know the listeners uh, love it too. So. Yeah, always great to come. Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mark Muska has been my uh, my guest, and I know if this stirred some thoughts, you can send me questions because he'll be back in a couple of weeks, and I'll I'll put the questions in a file, and I'll have questions for him next time he's, he comes on. So thanks for listening today, and thanks to Patrick and to Pastor David Miles, and Dr. Mark Muska. That is the show for the day. Go to MyFaithRadio.com if you want to re-listen to some of it. I always go back, Mark, and listen to this hour because I'm so busy getting questions ready that I don't... You can hardly remember what you said. I I can hardly remember, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go back and listen tonight. Me too. Yeah, thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. All right, have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.